With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to today's episode of the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, for their support of this program. Before we get started on the show today, I'd like to make you aware of our Health Tree community for our Multiple Myeloma program. This program includes topic-based and regional chapters for myeloma patients and hosts monthly webinars. We're on track to reach and educate over 115,000 myeloma patients through this program alone, in addition to the 850,000 unique visitors we have to this website. Now, you may have noticed we're moving over from MyelomaCrowd.org to HealthTree.org forward slash Myeloma, and we hope you can use that new link for all of our support programs. Now, on to our show for today. When I was diagnosed, maintenance therapy was not really an established practice, and since that time, we know that maintenance therapy can extend remissions and help patients live longer. Different strategies are now being used to personalize treatment, and we're going to hear about one of those and possibly more of those options today with Dr. Ashraf Badros. Dr. Badros, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Um, let me just give a short introduction for you before we get started. Um, Dr. Badros is Director of the Multiple Myeloma Service at the University of Maryland and Professor of Medicine. Dr. Badros is in the top 1% of his medical school and is one of the top 1% of published authors in the field of hematology. He peer reviews articles in over 24 hematology publications. His awards include the Excellence in Clinical Medicine Award, Humanitarian of the Year Award from the Mildred Mendel Cancer Foundation, Teacher of the Year Award in the Department of Medicine, and Clinical Publication of the Year Award in 2017. He performs oversight for 12 oncology hematology fellows on research and publications on various topics. Dr. Badros, has extensive clinical experience in bone marrow transplantation. He was involved in the initial trials of thalidomide and has conducted many clinical trials for relapse and refractory myeloma. Okay, I Hello? apologize. I have a little cough. Um, okay. So Dr. Badros is involved in the development of new therapeutics and has completed a gene therapy trial using G3039, a BCL antisense. He evaluated the use of proteasm, the proteasm inhibitor bortezomib and currently is involved in com- combining various new therapies in multiple myeloma like lenalidomide and histone deacetylase inhibitors in relapsed myeloma patients alone and in combination with the DEX and bortezomib. He's also the primary investigator for a clinical trial we will be talking about today. So, Dr. Badros, thank you so much again for joining and, and to have this kind of dis- this discussion about maintenance therapy. Can you share a little bit about today's standard of care in maintenance therapy? Um, yes. Um, <clears throat> I just would like to mention that myeloma treatment has changed in the last 
20 years from an incurable cancer to a chronic disease. Patients live with it, and now we are talking about subset of patients that are possibly cured from that disease. Um, the standard of care has evolved, and in multiple myeloma, we are seeing um, the benefits of research that has been done over 30 years ago. The standard treatment today really includes three stages. The first one is called induction treatment, where we give various combinations of most of them chemotherapeutic agents that include lenalidomide or revlimid with proteasome inhibitor like protozumab or carfluzumab with dexamethasone, and nowadays we add daratumumab. So to three to four drugs up front, the purpose of this treatment is to put the disease in remission. And then we do consolidation treatment if the patient is in a good shape to proceed with stem cell transplant, they go that route. If not, then we provide maintenance treatment. And maintenance treatment is basically the topic of today, which is basically a, an effective treatment that is given long-term after achievement of a remission with the goal of prolonging that remission and hopefully prolong survival of patients with multiple myeloma. And that's where we stand today. Yes, I think it's interesting that when I was diagnosed in 2010, um, I, you know, maintenance therapy wasn't really a thing. It kind of is a newer type thing, well, I guess in the last 12 years or so. But I think it's just so interesting. And I think a lot of that came out of some of the work at UAMS, right? And you, you practiced there. Uh, yes. Yeah. So actually, I, I, I joined the University of Arkansas almost, uh, what, uh, 20 years ago now. And at that time, Dr. Barlogi established what is called Total Therapy Program. And Total Therapy Program is really the backbone of what we do today. That includes induction treatment, transplant, followed by maintenance. At that time, maintenance was not accepted nationally, but in Arkansas, patients usually got maintenance treatment. At that time, we used chemotherapy. We used steroids. We used interferon. Unfortunately, all these drugs were quite toxic. And you are correct, up to... Ten years ago, the concept of maintenance was not nationally accepted. Ten years ago, three publications came in New England Journal of Medicine. All of them are randomized trials. Two of them were transplant trials, meaning patients received stem cell transplant. One was in Europe, in France, and one was in the United States. And after achieving a remission after the transplant, patients were randomized to receive lenalidomide, revlimid, or observation, and that was considered standard of care at that time observation. And the third trial was a non-transplant patient. They got chemotherapy followed by randomization to maintenance versus no maintenance, again using lenalidomide. And those three trials really established the maintenance role of lenalidomide. Uh, they showed that progression-free survival or the time the disease stay in remission improved significantly. It was up to 53 months in the lenalidomide arm versus 24 months in the observation arm. So basically, you gain about a year and a half remission when you go on lenalidomide maintenance. All the three trials were stopped early because of the benefit noted and established lenalidomide as a standard of care. Um, there was no difference in overall survival, meaning 
we have not seen that if you get lenalidomide maintenance, you live longer. The reason is patients received lenalidomide or revlimid when the disease came back. And over the years, uh, over the last 10 years, we have not seen conclusive evidence except for one meta-analysis that showed that overall survival is there. But definitely, we know that early use of lenalidomide in a maintenance fashion improve overall survival um, compared to its use at relapse. Yeah. And does the dosage of Revlimid as maintenance therapy make a difference? We don't have data on that, but we usually start at 10 milligrams. And in the U.S., there is a practice to give three weeks on, one week off. There is another practice to give the treatment for 30 days. Usually after the first two months of starting maintenance, we like to start at a lower dose of 10 milligrams. And if it's tolerated, meaning the white counts are good, the platelets are good, you can escalate the dose to 15 milligrams. It's worth noting that 25% of the patients who go on lenalidomide maintenance stop the treatment due to side effects. So it's not a treatment without side effects. And that's another challenge for, 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 for maintenance, especially if we are going to continue it indefinitely. In the U.S. trial, the treatment was given indefinitely until progressive disease in the European trials, most of the trials will stop at two years or three years, and that remains an open question at this point if we should continue until progression, which is our practice in the U.S., or to have what's called fixed duration, uh, meaning give it for two years. If you are in complete remission, we stop the treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's been in practice now for many years, it seems, let alone my maintenance. But it seems like new approaches are now coming to the forefront and being tested. So why, why first of all, why are these new approaches being tested? And, and then do you see specific themes of maintenance therapy that are being tested? I think after establishing the concept, which is we need maintenance treatment, several attempts to improve on the results of the revlimid. As we mentioned, even if you go lenalidomide, um, eventually, almost everybody does progress on lenalidomide, and we see relapses occurring. So the question is, can we improve on that? And one of the areas that is still very or requiring a lot of work is high-risk uh, patients. We know that patients with high-risk multiple myeloma, as defined by cytogenetic abnormalities like the Asian 17, do not really benefit much from maintenance treatment. So there is always continuous uh, need for improving the results of maintenance to see if we can eliminate the malignant clone, especially the high-risk clone. And these trials resulted in multiple attempts to improve the results. One of them was early on was using Velcate or bortezomib as maintenance. Uh, this is a trial that has been used in high-risk patients to see if we use Velcade, which is effective upfront treatment, alone or in combination with Revlimid, can we improve the results of high-risk patients? And maybe there is a signal for using it. And we started implementing that approach about maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, we started trying Oxizumab, which is an enlar, which is an oral tablet, so it's easier to give in maintenance given once a week. Um, again, there was 
minimal improvement in, in survival. So um, portazimab and lenalidomide are really falling out as drugs for, for use. And now we are moving into carfluzumab era and combining carfluzumab with lenalidomide has been tried in multiple trials. Probably the most known one is called ATLAS trial. And in this trial, we have seen improvement in progression-free survival and maybe a signal for improvement in high-risk patients. Uh, multiple trials have been published, um, and that approach is, is ongoing. Um, the big issue here is how long can you give this combination treatment? Most of the trials that use two and three drugs have a limited period, so you try it for two years, 18 months. Uh, on the ATLAS trial, which is actually an interesting trial, you go on the carfluzumab index for eight cycles, then assess the patient, check if they are MRD positive or negative, and I think we'll talk about that. And if they are MRD positive, they continue treatment for three years. If they're MRD negative, you stop the carfluzumab and put them on reflamid. So this kind of evolving concepts are, are definitely happening. Um, we're also seeing daratumumab being moved up front, uh, both in the induction part, so we are not using revlimid, velcate dex or carfluzumab revlimid dex, but we're adding a fourth drug, which is called daratumumab, and we are continuing that in some patients um, as maintenance, and again, significant improvement in the um, endpoints, which is what the trial is trying to achieve, which is prolonging the remission uh, duration. Um, as time improves, as our technology basically improves, we are moving from the area where we are looking at response, meaning complete response or partial response, to what's called MRD negativity, which is eliminating all the cancer cells or minimal residual disease, any residual cancer cells in the bone marrow. And I think we will be talking about that uh, uh, later, but uh, this is becoming another area of, of research to help guide the duration and the intensity of the maintenance treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I ask a different a question for you to define the difference between consolidation therapy and maintenance therapy, especially as um, we you launch into double or maybe triplet combinations of maintenance? Cause Usually that's kind of how I would think about consolidation therapy right after a transplant. So after a transplant, if you achieve a, a decent remission, which is defined as partial response or better, there are some trials that actually introduce two or three more cycles of the treatment you received early on. So let's say you received carfluzumab, brevlamid, dex up front, went for a transplant. Then sometimes you can give the patient two to three more cycles of carfluzumab revlimid dex followed by revlimid maintenance. This consolidation concept is just to eliminate more cancer cells. It's not a concept that has been accepted in several randomized trials. There was really no clear benefit for consolidation uh, versus going directly to maintenance treatment. I did not know that. Okay, interesting. So, okay, wonderful. Well. Um, let's keep talking about maintenance therapy because I know what you're trying to do is to, when you talked about high risk a little bit earlier, you're saying you're trying to personalize therapy for myeloma patients based on essentially their risk, how well they responded to their transplant or whatnot. So generally speaking, how is maintenance therapy becoming more 
personalized in your opinion? I think, you know, as, as we discussed, there are so many new treatments for multiple myeloma patients. And I think big challenge for us today is how to maximize the available treatment, not only to improve survival, which is a huge issue for us to improve survival of patients, but also to maintain quality of life. Um, the burden of treatment is not insignificant, um, both from side effects, uh, from second cancer that occur with lenalidomide treatment, to the cost of those drugs. Uh, I have not seen patients who said, oh, I'm doing wonderful in Revlimid, let's continue it indefinitely. There is always a price to be paid. So the question is going to be, how can we adjust our treatment to get the maximum benefit at the lowest cost, both to the patient and to the um, healthcare system? And one of the new areas that we are uh, working on, and uh, I think it's developing, is called minimal residual disease. And we are trying, there is a couple of trials done. One is called the MASTER trial. And this particular trial um, tried to use MRD or minimal residual disease to guide treatment. Uh, MRD in general, meaning achieving minimal residual disease, is not a new concept. It has been known for years that if you eliminate all the malignant cancer cells or you eradicate them, your outcome will be better than if you have residual cancer cells. Um, and nowadays, we have very high sensitive methods to be able to detect one cancer cell in a million cells we evaluate. So if you do a bone marrow, you can easily pick up those very few cancer cells. And looking at those cancer cells, some trials will try to make some decisions. And if you are negative, meaning if you achieved MRD negativity, especially if we can confirm that this negativity is repeated either in six months or a year, so you are what's called persistent MRD negative, not just one time, but two times. Some studies will stop treatment and observe the patient, which means have we cured this patient? Have we eradicated the malignant clone to the point we can keep an eye on the patient without any treatment? We don't tell them to go away. We just continue to monitor them and initiate salvage treatment when the, patient, when the disease comes back. So this is one way of adjusting treatment. There are many problems with using minimal residual disease in clinical practice, um, including technology, including availability. And as time move, goes on, I think it's moving from the clinical trials to the main stream. And actually, you probably know that the FDA has allowed us to use minimal residual disease as a biomarker in clinical trials to approve drugs depending on how good they are in eliminating this minimal residual disease in patients. But there are many, many questions unanswered about minimal residual disease, um, you know, uh, including the fact that you can have bone marrow that has no cancer cells and you have tumors being seen on a PET scan uh, done in areas where we don't do bone marrow, like in the ribs or in the spine. So MRD by itself might not be enough. And, um, you know, I don't want to talk about the future, yeah. but I, nowadays we are describing the what we call next generation ways to pick up very low levels of tumors, including something called mass spect, which is able to, through a blood test, pick up any residual myeloma cells, secreting very low levels of immunoglobulins, uh, 
there's also technology now to pick up circulating tumor cells, meaning the tumor cells leaving the bone marrow or the myeloma cells leave the bone marrow at very low levels and circulate in the peripheral blood. And now we can look at the peripheral blood and measure that. And these are all in development, and they will change the way we uh, do today. You know, everything will be changing. That's the myeloma world. It's literally changing every uh, few years. We change our definitions of remission. We change our treatment approaches. Now we are changing our induction, changing our maintenance. And that's all benefiting the patients, really. Yeah, completely. I mean, what you could, what you were saying is you may be able to uh, assess risk based on multiple factors, right? An MRI, a mass spec test, an MRD bone marrow test, um, you know, and, and other things all together to kind of assess the genetic testing to all assess that risk. And that, that's a very interesting thing. I think one of the points you made about MRD testing kind, kind of becoming a new endpoint is maybe you want to explain the significance of that because to me that shortens the speed of clinical trials with the the length of time patients are living today, which is amazing, but it's harder to run trials. Do you want to talk about that a little? So in the old days, the uh, gold standard for evaluating any new drug was to look at how long the patient survived. And you're right. It was an achievable goal, you know, 25, 30 years ago when survival was very short, so we can have an answer. And then when the survival improved significantly, thankfully, we started to look at what's called progression-free survival, meaning how long does the patient stay in remission before the disease comes back. So we started looking at progression-free survival, which has become more or less a surrogate endpoint for overall survival. So a lot of drugs are being approved today looking at progression-free survival. Nowadays, we are starting to look at minimal residual disease, meaning can we judge how effective a drug is by its ability to achieve what's called MRD negativity? And to give you an example, there is a big meta-analysis done that looks at patients that achieved MRD negative versus those who did not achieve MRD negativity in large number of trials, 12 trials looking at thousands of patients. Dr. Munshi published that a couple of years ago. And the survival is impressive. If you are achieving MRD negativity, your overall survival is 98 months. Uh, compared to 80 months if you don't achieve a multi-negativity. Wow. And uh, the remission duration is almost five years compared to two years if you don't achieve MRD negativity. So MRD negativity by itself is a very important uh, surrogate for both progression-free survival and overall survival. Again, I just would say that achieving MRD negativity in high-risk subsets like patients with deletion 17 has not translated into improvement in survival endpoints because those patients do have an aggressive clone that sometimes comes back very quickly. MRD has not been standardized. We started to have some standardization. I think the International Myeloma Working Group has put some guidelines because every trial has a different way of measuring MRD has a different target. Some of them measure one cell in 100,000, one cell in 10 to the fifth, and one cell in a million. So we are now moving into more sensitive ways to pick up very low number of cells. And there are many techniques. One is called next generation sequencing, where we look at the genetic picture or the genetic signature of the tumor. And one is called flow cytometry, which looks at the uh, 
the markers on the tumor cells, which can be done, and each one has pluses and minuses. I think we don't need to discuss that at this um, discussion. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, and does it matter how fast you get, like, let's say you do your induction therapy and you have a stem cell transplant, and you're testing for MRD positivity or negativity. Does the time it takes you to become MRD negative matter? Like, does, do you see a correlation between patients who become MRD negative quickly versus those who become it over maybe a four or six month period or something like that? So I think that's a crucial question and what we're discussing. The first issue is it doesn't matter how you achieve MRD. We know from the International Malmothon, from the IMF, the French trial, which was the first trial to look at the impact of MRD on survival after transplant. If you achieve MRD negativity with RVD alone, without transplant, you have the, more or less the same progression-free survival and overall survival as you achieve it after transplant. The difference in the two arms of the trial was if you go for a transplant, your chance of achieving MRD negativity is much higher than if you don't go for transplant. So we know that if you achieve MRD negativity, you do well. The question that you're asking, unfortunately, I don't believe we have an answer for yet, which is the timing. We know that achieving MRD negativity is important, but we don't, which is probably a reflection of the tumor biology, meaning the tumor is very sensitive. It sees chemotherapy or it sees transplant and achieves a remission. Would you have the same outcome if you keep giving the patient three lines of therapy, you know, try RVD, doesn't work, add DERA, add carfilzomab, to try to push the outcome to an MRD negativity, which is what you're asking, which really we don't have an answer for that. But we know that if you are MRD negative after the treatments we have today, your outcome is quite good because your disease biology is telling us I'm sensitive, I'm responsive, I'm not high risk, I'll achieve a long remission. But Pushing patients to achieve MRD negativity is the question of clinical trials, including the trial I think we will discuss in a minute, which is the DARA RVD, uh, I'm sorry, DARA LEND maintenance uh, versus LEND maintenance for patients who are MRD positive after transplant, trying to address that issue. What happens if you try to push patients to achieve MRD who did not achieve MRD with what we have today? Yeah. Well, let's jump into that trial. So this is called the ARIGA trial. Am I saying that correctly? That's and if you correct. want to just kind of, you, you kind of explained it, that you're using a double combination of lenalidomide and with daratumumab post-transplant. And these are for, this is a phase three study, correct? So it's a phase three trial. And just, just to step one step back before I go on the trial, most sure. of the trials that has been published previously using quadruplet therapy, meaning adding daratumumab to Revlimid, to Velcade, and Dex, will continue maintenance after the transplant, uh, meaning you cannot really look at the impact of Dara Revlimid after transplant using this trial if you did not give the patient Dara beforehand. So it's like a package. It's a total therapy. You cannot separate the impact of each component of the treatment, it's a package. It's a total therapy. It's, you have to give the three components to see the outcome. In our trial, uh, which is national trial, it will enroll 200 patients randomized between two treatments. One is DARA, lenalidomide, and one is lenalidomide. The treatment has fixed 
duration, meaning it's given for 36 months. To go on the trial, you have to have myeloma that received induction. No daratumumab was given during the initial induction treatment. And after the transplant, you have to be in a VGPR or a very good partial remission. So we are selecting a group of patients that have very good response to transplant, which is achievable today in over 80% of the patients after transplant. So VGPR is between 60 and 80%, depending on what regimen you use. So it's not like a very difficult uh, goal. And then we evaluate the bone marrow on those patients after the transplant. And if the patient is MRD negative, meaning there is no tumor cells in the bone marrow, they are not a candidate to go on the trial. So we are selecting patients that are responding very well, but they still have residual tumor cells in the bone marrow. And those patients will be randomized to receive daratumumab lenalidomide versus lenalidomide alone. And this is ongoing trial. I believe the trial almost finished enrollment. I think we enrolled, uh, last enrollment I heard was like there are 15 or 20 patients left. There was a problem uh -huh. with COVID and uh, COVID resulted in some delay in other sites. I think we enrolled the largest number of patients on this trial. And the trial actually evaluates MRD negativity. How many of those patients that are MRD positive will become negative after you start the treatment? We look at 12 months, we look at 24 months and 36 months. And then we are going to see the impact of adding DARA to the lenalidomide, which we suspect will have a synergistic activity to improve the outcome of those patients. Because what is left in the bone marrow after you see high-dose chemotherapy with melphalan, after you see induction, usually with the proteasome inhibitor, and reblamin mm -hmm. are usually resistant cells. We don't know how, oh, that's an open area of research. Why do you have a residual clone? What made the clone resistant? And this particular question is under investigation. What is the biology of this clone? Why is this clone resistant? And what makes it unique? Is it different than the original myeloma? And that's why you're adding data with LEN. Their mechanism of action hopefully will be synergistic. Yeah, so you're saying you can do any kind of induction. So as a newly diagnosed myeloma <clears throat> patient, you can have any genetic features, correct? That is correct. Patients or are do you have, okay. high risk versus standard risk, but we're just evaluating the data for that. Yeah, so you're just taking all comers, and then you're saying you can do any induction therapy, but you can't have had daratumumab in that beginning treatment. And then stem cell transplant, and that's, and that's, quite a bit of therapy in itself, uh, and then you're saying this clone, whatever's left, if you still have disease, then you have something that's kind of more resistant to, like, these standard treatment, uh, treatments or therapies. So doing this with um, two, this two-drug combination with daratumumab um, is a good idea. So, um, you know, as lenalidomide, can, can you just kind of explain the role of lenalidomide a bit? Because I know it has direct killing of myeloma cells, but it also kind of amps up your immune system, I guess you would say. So if you want to explain anything more on that, and then how would daratumumab work in, in that idea about maintenance therapy to just kind of mop up everything that's left? or um, And then synergistically, how do they work together? 
Um, there are so many questions there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> so I answer your question. You're right. Lenalidomide is one of those very complex drugs. The mechanism of action is definitely direct killing of the tumor cells, um, and that's through a mechanism. Probably nowadays we have a little bit of idea about it. We throw some echoes and uh, the, through certain mechanisms it has direct tumor kill. We know for sure that adding Lenalidomide with a proteasome inhibitor like Revlim, like uh, carfilzomab and bortezomab has synergistic activity uh, through inhibition of the proteasome inhibitor that is a mechanism for some of the effects of lenalidomide. But also lenalidomide, as you correctly mentioned, is an immune modulator. So if you use lenalidomide in the maintenance setting, the purpose of it in addition to hopefully controlling whatever cancer is left and killing the rest of the cells is to change the immune environment of the tumor. And that happens through activation of certain T cells, which is cytotoxic, meaning some of the, theta, that some of the T cells in our body are capable of killing tumor cells. The problem is there are so many subtypes of T cells. And adding daratumumab in that setting can eliminate some of what's called suppressor T cells. So we know that CD38, for example, which is the target of uh, daratumumab, targets a protein on the myeloma cell. It can directly kill the tumor when you give daratumumab, but it can also kill some of the suppressor T cells, leading to T cell activation of the cytotoxic cells. So the combination of Dara-Len or daratumumab lenalidomide can activate this immune system. In addition to that, we know that lenalidomide has a very important role, which is affecting the bone marrow microenvironment. So it has multiple, multiple effects on the cytokines or the proteins that are secreted. It affects the blood vessel formation, which basically makes the bone marrow, which is the soil, if you can say it, or the micro, or the place where the plasma cells divide, less hospitable to the tumor cells. So that's the reason we use uh, lenalidomide um, with, after transplant and the rationale for combining daratumumab. And we are going to see if the trial becomes positive, meaning are able to convert a lot of MRD-positive patients to MRD-negative, and whether that translates into improvement in their survival. The trial is powered to measure the uh, MRD negativity rate, and that's one of the trials I believe that I think the FDA will accept MRD negativity as a way to approve this kind of treatment uh, for maintenance if the trial is positive. We don't know yet. Right. And and so when you have your stem cell transplant, how long after the stem cell transplant can you join this trial? Because this is a very practical thing for my little patients. Like how far <clears throat> out can I be to even consider joining this trial? Up to six months, we can enroll patients. We usually do the bone marrow around day 100, which is our standard in our center. Some centers do it around day 60. Uh, some centers do it later. Um, but we usually do it around day 100. And then we uh, send a sample for MRD testing. MRD testing takes time. So it's, you have to have the original sample because we are doing next generation sequencing. The endpoint of the study is measuring one time 10 to the fifth, uh, and this can measure up to one time 10 to the sixth, uh, meaning one cancer cell in a million. 
and then we wait until we get the results, make sure the patient meets the criteria for MRD um, positivity, so to go on the trial. The good news in our site, which I cannot talk to other sites, but in our center, over 50% of our patients after transplant are MRD negative. So we screened close to 30 plus patients to enroll 15. And that's a theme you see a lot nowadays in patients with myeloma, that the myeloma is eradicated basically with uh, available treatments. And we just need to hopefully maintain this low or absent level uh, for a couple of years or three or four years of maintenance. And then if we stop treatment, that would be a great advantage for patients if we can stop maintenance treatment, as I said, to decrease the side effects and maintain good quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. Every patient wants that. Um, can you answer, well, you talked about the difference between MRD positive and MRD negative patients earlier in the show, but what's the average time to progression for MRD positive patients? Uh, uh, for, from the uh, meta-analysis, meta-analysis is when you get a lot of trials that presented data. It appears that if you are MRT positive after transplant, uh, is about two years. Median, meaning 50% of the patient will still be doing well later on. And if you are MRD negative, it's close to five years. So I think it's about two to three years different. Again, that doesn't put into account the maintenance. It doesn't put into account the intensity of the maintenance. But we know from this meta-analysis that high-risk patients have not done better with, uh, with uh, MRD negativity, meaning if you have deletion 17, which is a true high-risk patient, and uh, deletion 17 patients usually, even if they achieve MRD negativity, they need to be aggressively treated after transplant. Maintenance treatment, if I'm going to just to take us back to that point, if a patient is a standard risk, meaning everything is good, we usually give maintenance. The fact that you are MRD negative doesn't mean we don't give you maintenance. We give maintenance for somewhere between two to three years. I think nowadays we can repeat the MRD at, after transplant and maybe at two years. If you are MRD negative after two years, I like to do it three years. Some people talk two, but I think after three years, maybe it's reasonable, reasonable to stop the treatment. Why? Because long-term use of lenalidomide has been associated with complications. We know that second cancer, especially mild spastic syndrome, increases in this subset of patients about 5 to 8% uh, after transplant and lenalidomide maintenance. We know that some side effects that occur with long-term use are very annoying, including diarrhea, which is really one of the main reasons after two to three years of tolerating Revlimid, you start having diarrhea, which is related to bile Malabsorption that occurs in patients. Sometimes they respond well to bile binding cholestyramine, but sometimes they don't, and we have to stop the treatment. Sometimes patients have excessive fatigue. They just can't do anything. They sleep 12 hours at night and sleep during the day. And I think we have to discuss with the patient. You know, maintenance is, is, is a way to prolong the remission duration. If you're having a lot of side effects, then we stop the maintenance. Sometimes we try addition different types of maintenance beside Revlimid. But that's for standard risk. And high risk, if we don't have a clinical trial like the one we are talking about, and we don't have options, I believe that we are at a stage where we can give patients doublet for maintenance. I think proteasome inhibitor, something like carfluzumab and Revlimid, will be quite appropriate, assuming that the patient is able to tolerate carfluzumab, good kidney function, no heart problems, no shortness of breath, 
And using carfilzomab somewhere between 8 to 18 months has been shown to improve MRD negativity, at least in some trials. I'm not going to, you know, the ATLAS. I don't want to mention names, but there are trials out there to show that this particular regimen can actually convert some patients to MRD negative. But more importantly, it can prolong the remission duration in some high-risk patients, uh, including those with deletion 17. I have seen that personally, patients that have been able to overcome some of the high-risk signature by using doublets for, trans, for maintenance, including carfilzomab and, and, and uh, lenalidomide. Yeah, okay, so interesting. That's very interesting what you said. Um, can can you share where this trial is open? Um, I actually don't know. <laughs> I know it's open in multiple sites. I know uh, City of Hope, I think, in the end. It's, it's open for a lot of transplant centers. Um, I think the best way we to will, do it is I to, think we'll share We'll find a link and share it. Um, it's called so Clinical Because I think there were... Yeah. Clinicaltrials.gov yeah. will lift the site. Yeah, we have a clinical trial finder also in my Loma, so we'll find the link. And when we send out the transcript for the show, we will include the link to the show. Okay, to me this poses kind of an interesting challenge because for most newly diagnosed patients, this diagnosis is a complete shock. It's usually a disease we have never heard of before. And um, clinical trials are sometimes considered by patients as like, oh, maybe if I run out of options later, I'll consider a clinical trial. You want to talk to the point of why clinical trials are so important to consider at every stage of your disease? <clears throat> this is a prime example to me of a good, the good reason why. I think, I think your point is extremely well taken. I just will mention one trial uh, called the Maya trial, which um, is for patients who are not candidate for transplant. And this trial enrolled, uh, was a large trial published in New England maybe seven, six, seven years ago. And this trial enrolled patients all over the world, actually. We opened the trial on our site, and the trial was open for a year, and we enrolled two patients. So most of the patients, when they are newly diagnosed, are treated in the community. I see them when they are being referred for a stem cell transplant, which really is a big burden in the U.S. in general to be able to reach patients up front to be able to do those very, very crucial clinical trials. Most of them are done in Europe, as you probably know. But it is important because that's how we advance the field. None of those trials include sugar tablets or placebo, all those trials will include an effective treatment combined with a novel approach. We discussed using RVD, which is a standard of care. We added daratumumab to RVD, which is the Griffin trial. We opened this trial on our site. We enrolled a good number of patients on it. So this trial has helped advance the field. It's not a randomized trial, so we don't have the randomization yet to establish that, but it's very clear that adding daratumumab to Revlimid, Velcade, and Dex in the Griffin trial has improved the outcome of patients. And the good news is we were able to enroll patients across all spectrum, including African-American patients that usually have a lower representation on clinical trial. 30% of the patients in the Griffin trial were African-American. We actually have a separate manuscript describing the outcome of those patients. They do extremely well. So the patients that go on clinical trials benefit from the new treatment. They do better than patients that are treated off clinical trials. 
In addition to physician monitoring you, you have a whole team of researchers of uh, industry or FDA monitoring those trials. So there is definite advantages. In this coming year, and I am going to jump in and uh, discuss something not on my uh, agenda for you, which is the maintenance, but we are starting to look at CAR T cells. We have trials for CAR T cells. As you know, those trials are very difficult to get on, but we were lucky enough to open many of those trials. And actually, the upcoming trial, because CAR T cells have been extremely effective in patients who progress in later stages of the disease. So like any treatment, the CAR T cells now are moving up front. And really, it's very exciting for us to see CAR T cells being used up front to see if the newly diagnosed patients, especially those with high-risk disease, can benefit from this very effective treatment. So nowadays, after induction, we are having randomized trials to compare CAR T cell with Apecma, which is, again, is BCMA, versus transplant. Someone will say, oh, I'd like to get CAR T cells. We don't know if CAR T cells will be extremely helpful up front. So we are trying to study that. So this is another way to improve the outcome of patients. These are all crucial trials to enroll to because it helped advance the field. And maybe, maybe we are hoping that we will be able to achieve remissions after CAR T cells that will be longer than what we see today. Well, I'm telling you, we have remissions up to six and seven and eight years, and we have patients now living beyond 10 years. Hopefully, we'll improve that and convert an incurable cancer from a chronic disease to a curable disease. And that's really the goal of the clinical trials is to improve the outcome. Um, I just will add that the reason we are adding this trial, there is another trial, by the way, looking at patients that have minimal residual disease after transplant to give them CAR T cells to see if we can rid of those malignant clones. So there is a very uh, uh, real interest of moving CAR T cells, which you probably know we are one of the, probably the only center in Maryland at this point that are doing a lot of work in CAR T cell and myeloma. And um, we are treating patients in relapse setting, and we're looking forward to moving it up front, either versus transplant or after transplant as not maintenance, but maybe consolidation to see if we can eliminate the malignant clone that is uh, left after we use our best treatments up front. So you get DARA, RVD, transplant, you still have myeloma, let's try CAR-T. So these are all attempts to improve the outcome of patients. And I think you always like to mention, if I remember that, coming to a transplant center and treated in a center that sees a lot of myeloma patients have been associated with improved outcome for patients. And I echo that, especially with the development yeah, of very complicated treatments that require very, very knowledgeable team to manage the side effects of those treatments because they are not without side effects. I'm not talking about CAR-T as a treatment given as an outpatient. It's a hospitalized patient for a week with significant um, monitoring and, and paying attention to every change to be able to manage the side effects. And the more experience we have, the better it is for the patients. Um, so that's hopefully answered your question about clinical trials. Yes, that's a great answer for clinical trials. I just think that there's a particular challenge for these newly diagnosed patients because, like you're saying, um, there are trials for newly diagnosed patients who are super high risk for CAR-T. And there are, you know, like this trial is an important option for patients to see if maintenance can be better um, than standard of care, which is what they get. But I think for patients who are being treated in a community oncology setting and not in an academic center, like you're saying, 
the doctor might never even bring up the fact that, oh, you could, you know, yes, you're a newly diagnosed patient. Yes, this is a huge shock. Yes, we need to start you on therapy. But here's some different options that you could consider as part of your strategy. Because to me, this myeloma treatment thing is a complete strategic game. And you need to have your very best treatment up front. Um, you need to do, you know, whatever is possible for you up front. Uh, and those every move is an important move. So I don't know. In my opinion, this is a really important thing to consider. But if you are in the community where these trials are not happening, then that may never even be a conversation. And you may not know enough as a patient to say, hey, maybe there are some clinical trials that I could join. No, you're absolutely right. I think uh, I think one of the blessings that we have in myeloma is that we have so many options for treatment, and a lot of physicians in the community feel comfortable with those options. Tell the patient, hey, we have so many drugs, you don't need to do anything. Let's try this first, and when you fail, we can see what we can do. But you're right, maximizing the treatment we have, and as you you know try to emphasize personalizing that treatment. Uh, when we have a clinical trial, doesn't mean that every patient will go on the trial. We assess patient risk. We assess their cytogenetics. We assess their response after transplant. We look for minimal residual disease. We're trying to understand what kind of clone is left. And all this biology of matching a biological endpoint in the patient with the best treatment is an ongoing effort. We don't have answers yet. There are so many unanswered questions. And the only way to answer them is to go on clinical trials. And I just will, will add one crucial issue for us, which is the community. Um, you know, I'm very lucky uh, uh, living in, in Baltimore uh, because we have a very high-level medical community. As we always say, in 40-mile uh, radius, we have MIH, we have Hopkins, we have Maryland, we have Georgetown, George Washington, Howard. We have very strong medical community that really keeps physicians updated. But even in that community, we are still seeing gaps in discussion of myeloma treatment. And I think that probably goes to what you're saying about trying to go to a tertiary center, which is a message I think has been done many times. The last thing that I will mention is African-American patients. We still have a, a very serious gap with African-American presentation on clinical trials. As you know, African-American patients represent 20% of yeah. the myeloma patients today. And it's expected they will mm -hmm. be 25 within the next couple of years. And their representation on clinical trials, both newly diagnosed and relapsed, more in the relapsed, is less than 2 to 3%. So we really have a long mm -hmm. road to go to reach this population. And the question is going to be, is that important? It is crucial because biology might be different. Response to treatment might be different. We don't have this data, and we need to get this data. We need to show that racial and ethnic disparity does not exist in response to treatment. Another disparity that is crucial, and unfortunately there is no answer for it, is the socioeconomic disparity. Some patients cannot come to the tertiary center. Some patients do not have the insurance or the money to receive adequate treatment today. And these are bigger issues, and it falls into the disparity of cancer care in general. And that's an area our center is very focused on, which is the disparity, both ethnic, racial, and socioeconomic. And, you know, we are, I think, as a myeloma community, we have an obligation to provide the best treatment for our patients. 
irrespective of all those disparities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've decided to focus on this because, and so we created a Black Myeloma Health site um, specifically for this because uh, um, black myeloma patients are two, three times more likely to get a myeloma diagnosis. So this is absolutely critical. And what you're saying is so true. You know, genetically speaking, I think uh, African-Americans tend to do better with treatment. They're diagnosed younger, so maybe that's part of the reason they're doing better, but maybe it's genetics. And you don't know how, which, what's the optimal treatment for a standard risk um, black myeloma patient. You know, you just don't know that until you get the data out of these studies and trials. So, and, and just the whole idea that. is to improve care, yeah. Yeah, as I just mentioned, in the Griffin trial, which is the DARA Revlam index, there is a, a subgroup uh-huh. analysis that's published separately looking at African-American patients. You probably have access to the paper. And you are absolutely right. I think the message should be if black patients receive the same treatment that Caucasian or Asian patients receive, they do better. Not well, they do better. There is one year better yeah. outcome in black patients compared to Caucasians if they receive the same treatment. So we are helping patients, and we have published the data years ago, actually, maybe seven, eight years ago now, published the outcome of uh, black patients compared to Caucasians after transplant, and we have noted that if they come to transplant, they do much better. The problem is they don't come to transplant, either because their physician doesn't refer them or they have you know, some fears about specific academic centers, but if they receive the same treatment, they do extremely well. Yeah, I know. Um, we're trying to address that. We have a new program that we'll be running called Health Tree Reach to try to address some of these disparities in care for black patients and Spanish-speaking patients and then even to address some of these socioeconomic issues that you covered because it is really important to reach all my little patients um, and educate them to the, the potential that they have. It means longer life. That's what it means for them. It means years of longer life. And that's, that's the goal. So thank you so much for your amazing work. I do want to open it up for some caller questions. So if you have a question for Dr. Badros, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And um, let's get started with one caller question. Okay, go, go ahead with your question. Hello? Did you have a question? Okay. All right. Thanks. Oh, they, they may have pushed the wrong button. Okay. Um, caller um, at ending in 7401, go ahead with your question. Yeah, hi. Thank you. I, I'm wondering um, on the clinical trial you talked about with Revlimed, if a patient has a bad reaction to the Revlimed, are there options um, to other than going off the trial, can they lower the dose or do they have any options? Uh, yes, so the trial we have uh, start patients on 10 milligrams and we have an option to upgrade the dose, increase the dose to 15 milligrams after two months. But we also can decrease the dose to five milligrams and we can decrease the dose to five milligrams every other day. We really have not seen the bad skin reactions to take patients off study on this. And it's really rare for us to see that, to be honest with you. Yes, reactions can occur, but you have to remember that most patients nowadays receive Revlimid upfront during induction. 
So we will have an idea if they are reacting to revlimid or not. Um, there is the occasional patient that do very well during induction and then have a skin rash during uh, maintenance. And those patients, we stop, we let the rash go away, and then we start at a lower dose. If the rash comes back, we can give it every other day. And most of the time, we can desensitize the allergic reaction and patients can continue on the treatment. The other issue is going to be drop in the count. So we know that patients that get Dara Revlimid have drop in their white count, and we can adjust the dose of Revlimid for that. This regimen is also immunosuppressive, so there is risk of infection, so we have to be conscious of that. As I said, none of those regimens are without side effects. Um, we know that if you receive daratumumab, for example, your response to COVID uh, is going to be blunted. Um, and this is something we consider. So patients that are on the trial are giving antibody infusion rather than vaccination. So we give them shield to try to give them protection against COVID. So there is a lot of issues with each of those arms um, that we pay attention to when we treat patients. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, great, great question, and thanks for the answer. I think that's an important concept, too. You talked about this already, but when you say you get better care sometimes on clinical trials, I think it's really true. You really think ahead in that trial design, and you think, okay, what are we going to encounter, and how do we, how do we handle it going forward instead of being surprised by it later? So that's good to hear. Okay, caller ending at 9095, go ahead with your question. Hi there. I think this is me. Uh, first, great questions and great answers. Really appreciate it. So it's a two-part question. One is, if you have higher risk 414 and amplification 1Q, and so post-transplant your bone marrow biopsy was 18, but you've stayed on KRD, you're going to take another bone marrow biopsy. So if you become one out of a million, would it be okay? And I think you said it would be okay to sort of go off the cripolis. That's question one, and the second part of this is I read something regarding to where the translocation is in 414 that really would determine if you are a high risk under 414. Can you comment on that? Thank you. Um, I think, uh, yeah, 414 is one of the translocations that we know that proteasome inhibitors are extremely effective in those patients. And actually, if we, I didn't talk about that, but the the exosomab trial, which has been Laro given orally for maintenance, there is one group of patients that did well on that trial, which were the patients with 414, because proteasome inhibitor is extremely effective in this subset of patients. Using carfilozumab revlimid dex is extremely important. I probably will follow what they did in the ATLAS trial, which is give eight cycles of treatment, and if you are MRD negative at eight cycles, at four cycles and then eight cycles, so repeated negativity with PET scan negative, I think it's reasonable to go on lenalidomide alone. But in general, I like if the patient is high risk and tolerating the KRD well, to use it a little bit longer, somewhere between 12 and 18 months. But with 414, which is quite sensitive, I think it's quite reasonable to consider uh, coming off carfilozumab. But my preference is to at least eight by the trial that is published or uh, go up to 12 and 18 months if you're tolerating it. After the first rush of carfilozumab, which is given weekly, you can go to day one and day 15. So instead of taking it three times a month, you can take it twice a month with lenalidomide and a low dose of DEX, and that's also acceptable. Okay. 
And did you comment on the, where the break is in the translocation of Actually, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I think that this is something I cannot answer, uh, to be honest with you. I've seen the data, but none of them are, are enough to, to make a story that if you have a break point uh, in, in particular area, you respond versus you don't respond. The same story with the 1Q. I know the 1Q story is also evolving story. So these are all in development and clinical trials, but I don't think they are enough to make decisions about initiating maintenance or stopping treatment or starting it. Okay, thank you much, and again, excellent, appreciate it. Hello? Oh, sorry, okay, caller, one more question. Um, caller at four nine five seven. Go ahead with your question. That's all we have. We'll have time for. Okay. Hi. Can you hear me? I don't know if I'm on mute or not. Can you hear yep. me? No, we can. Hi. We can this is uh, Steve Morris from Nashville. Um, I have a. Since you brought up the topic of the problem of um, African Americans and their treatment and all sorts of stuff, uh, I'm a Caucasian, a white Caucasian, but I joined the group, uh, the African-American group here at HealthTree, and I am getting a, a real education about it uh, from, from uh, black uh, patients. And I just wanted to make one suggestion that came out of one of the meetings that we had, especially for older, older African-Americans. Um, if you go back historically to the 1940s, 1950s, um, and by the way, I was offered trials my first day that I was diagnosed, and I turned them down for the very same reasons. And I'll explain what it was, that um, I just assumed that um, one would get treatment, since it's called clinical trials, and the others would get a placebo. Um, and historically, um, if you go back, uh, blacks and uh, African-Americans in the 1940s and 50s were never given the good treatment. Um, they would get the ones picked out and given the placebos, whether it was the trials for oh, any of them. Anyway. So I just would like to suggest, I know it's impossible probably logistically to do, but um, perhaps clinical trials is not a good title for clinical trials um, and it, as the weeks went by and I got my uh, into the chemo and I found out what clinical trials that I was not going to get a, a placebo I was going to get the standard treatment and perhaps something that could be better um, of course I agree so I just want to make that suggestion that the, that uh, clinical trials mean something to white um, folks than to older African-Americans, and I would suggest that at some conference they consider, you know, I, I've been in the health, I, I'm retired now, but I was in the healthcare profession. I'm a retired dentist for 42 years, hospital and Air Force and private practice, and perhaps change the name just to make it obvious that you're not getting a placebo. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for comment. I think it's just so interesting. Dr. Rogers, do you have any closing comments about that? Um, no, back to maintenance. Standard of care one drug, linalidomide is good. Doublet for high-risk patients with proteasome inhibitor, either pertuzumab or carfilzumab. Standard of care, there are clinical trials going on, introducing antibody. 
There's going to be trials for maintenance for MRD with CAR-T opening soon. Please stay tuned. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Your clinical research is so important to move the bar forward for my patients. And this is actually why we do this show, to highlight the good work you're doing and the important research that you're moving forward so that we as myeloma patients can benefit from it. And uh, we're just so appreciative for everything you do. So thank you so much for joining us today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and thank you for listening to the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma. We invite you to join us next time to learn more about what's happening in myeloma research and what it means for you. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.